Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We turn away now from the cultural imagination to the science and policy that served as the foundation to the response. Doctors Tony Fauci, Deborah Burks, and Robert Redfield were the most visible and influential scientific advisors on the coronavirus task force, and all of them cut their teeth in the global battle against HIV-AIDS. The work of suppressing HIV created the personalities and scientific understanding that jump-started our fight against COVID, both here in San Francisco and around the world. Here to explain how, we're joined by Jesus Guillen. He's the founder of the HIV Long-Term Survivors Group. Dr. Diane Havler, professor of medicine, UCSF, and she's the chief of infectious disease and AIDS at Zuckerberg SF General. And Jeff Sheehy, longtime AIDS activist and the first openly HIV-positive member of the SF Board of Supervisors. We want to come to you first, Jesus. I mean, you saw the darkest days of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. When the pandemic began, did you flash back to the 1980s or what were you thinking about? Uh, Yes, no doubt. Um, But one of the things that really, I think it was really too close to us us is when you started to talk about the physical distancing and social distancing. Uh, While here we're talking about the safety of all of us, of each person in the 80s and the 90s with HIV, it was that ignorance, homophobia and hate against a community that started to get sick Nobody wanted to use the same bathrooms. Nobody wanted to be in the same room with you. Nobody wanted you to touch their kids. Um, and that uh, separation, it was just uh, a horrible way to feel that sense of rejection when the official, again, um, the physical separation happened here. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds traumatic. Um, do you think the long-term survivors who went through what you did were prepared for COVID times or was it actually more difficult because of the experiences that you'd had? Both. Uh, we were more prepared because, again, there's certain kind of strengths in surviving and all this community of long-term survivors growing older for the first time in this life have a lot of strengths. But the other fact that we have to remember that there have been triggers that they are uh, just horrible. Uh, my trigger happened in the bus. The first time that I hear someone talking about the cruise that was being allowed in Oakland and somebody said, how can they let these people uh, be right there? They should take them to an island and not just here close to us. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes reading back into the history of AIDS activism, it can seem like 
HIV affected mostly white, affluent gay men. Um, from what you've seen, what communities were hit the hardest? Uh, definitely uh, the communities of color are still after 40 years. This is the 40th year that the first cases of HIV AIDS, the communities of color are still with COVID-19 and with HIV are hit very hard. Um, and we have to always remember that, you know, to try to speak to our communities the way that they need to be taught in order to fix this problem. We're talking about how the global AIDS epidemic laid the intellectual and scientific foundations for the fight against COVID with Diane Havler, Chief of Infectious Disease at UCSF, Jeff Sheehy, longtime AIDS activist and the first HIV-positive member of the SF Board of Supervisors, and we were just hearing from Jesus Guillen, the founder of HIV Long-Term Survivors Group. And we want to hear from you, too. Did you live through HIV-AIDS? Did that prepare you for covid Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk to you, turn to you, uh, Dr. Havler, to talk about how you think HIV research and action shaped you and your generation of infectious disease scientists. How do you think people who went through those early days are different from other infectious disease specialists? I think the one of the things looking back um, is that what we've realized in order to overcome a pandemic, it takes a community. And the reason why HIV made the progress it did was that we brought together scientists, community, policymakers and the private sector all together and discussed and debated the issues. And that is, I think, the most important lesson of what one does and what one faces an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, having been a person who went through from the very beginning, um, certainly that shapes us. But I have full confidence in the generation right now that seeing their first pandemic, that they will be able to um, respond better the next time around. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking about the field that you came into, I mean, public health was born kind of a paternalistic moment in the, the early progressive era in the early 20th century. I mean, do you think that HIV AIDS researchers move the field in a, in a different direction? I think that, um, uh, yes, from the standpoint that we recognize that science alone cannot overcome a pandemic. And um, many of the, there must be true partnerships with the community. And I think that actually has influenced many other fields in medicine. Yeah. Um, Jeff, you know, the Bay Area has had exceptional COVID outcomes. Do you think that being one of the epicenters of the HIV pandemic somehow prepared the city better than other places? Oh, absolutely. Uh, If you look at the director of public health in San Francisco, um, Grant Colfax, he cut his teeth on the uh, HIV epidemic and actually was uh, Barack Obama's uh, director of national HIV policy. You know, I'm so delighted to see Dr. Havler here Um, as she's been addressing HIV in the city and and leading uh, the Getting to Zero uh, uh, consortium. um, She's worked with communities throughout the city, and it was 
such a beautiful and natural pivot to do things like having testing at BART stations at 24th admission and 16th admission, to do door-to-door -door outreach for testing, to, to, to make sure that this community, our uh, Latinx community, which has been so disproportionately impacted by COVID, to make sure that direct outreach has gone on to get people vaccinated. And I think that that has played a crucial role. Uh, we learned, and I think Jesus mentioned this, that uh, communities of color have been disproportionately impacted by HIV. And the fact that we have seen that in HIV, we started to see this in COVID and we continue to see this in COVID, uh, it really got people focused on, on addressing these inequities. Uh, we're not perfect. We haven't done as well as we could do or we should do, but certainly we've done a lot better than a lot of other communities. And it's because we took that experience of inequity and we addressed it. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how the global AIDS epidemic laid the intellectual and scientific foundations for the fight against COVID with Professor Diane Havler. Uh, she's at UCSF and Chief of Infectious Disease at Zuckerberg SF General Hospital. Jeff Sheehy, longtime AIDS activist and the first HIV-positive member of the SF Board of Supervisors. And Jesus Guijen, founder of the HIV Long-Term Survivors Group. You know, before the break, Jeff, you were mentioning the work that Dr. Havler has done um, for testing in the mission specifically. And I was hoping you could tell us more about that, Dr. Havler. Sure. One of the things we know in a pandemic, there's no one size fits all. And so we've, we've heard that this pandemic has disproportionately affected certain communities. So it's absolutely critical, certainly when we were leaning so heavily on testing in the early response for us to provide testing to the populations most at risk. So what we did in the mission is we partnered with the Latino Task Force and John Jacobo, Susana Rojas, and we sat down we said together, what's the best way to reach this community? What would low barrier testing look like? So what it came to was that we needed low barrier opportunity for testing. And what we mean by low barrier is that you don't need transportation to get there, you can walk there. You can get testing same day. You don't need to go on a computer. You don't need health insurance. And you are interacting with people you recognize that are speaking Spanish, if you are Spanish mon monolingual, and you are welcomed by people um, that you can, uh, that are your community co-members. So um, I think that was the first thing um, that we did with testing. And just like in HIV, and really for any infectious disease, it's not just about testing and generating numbers. It's about testing and responding. 
And so in the mission where we offer our low barrier testing, um, what we do is that we offer response services, enabling people to get into isolation. And something I think, which is really a testimony to San Francisco is for some people who have health insurance, sick leave, um, they can afford to take a week or two off of work and they're covered, or they can work at home on their computer. But for many frontline workers and many of those individuals are those that live in the mission, they are unable to do this. So um, in order that persons can focus on their health and not their finances, a result of our data, which showed the disproportionate effect of um, the Latino community, 20-fold higher risk in our early data, um, the city of San Francisco through Hillary Ronan started a program called Right to Recover, which provides wage replacement for people who need to go into isolation during this time period. So I think those are some of the examples of how we do community-facing response to a pandemic. And do you see that as sort of an extension of the sort of compassionate care model that began with HIV, being able, like, thinking about the whole person and not just about trying to, you know, treat the disease specifically or, or find and track the disease specifically? Absolutely. We always say that the patient is at the center of what we do. And I think it's the difference between health systems and systems for health that really work for the clients. And that is truly how our low barrier testing and now low barrier vaccine uh, 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 services uh, are offered in the mission. You know, Jeff, um, one of the key components of early AIDS research was obviously the activism that drove um, change and, and science, uh, especially, you know, with an intransigent um, presidential administration at the time. This time around, where do you think that energy is is going? I mean, the, most of the COVID activism seems to have been against the public health measures and not for the you know, scientific research. Well, I think um, I, I think I think that you know we, we we had somebody in the White House who kind of distorted reality, and I'm not sure that I actually see that. What what Diane just described was an amazing work of activism that really recapitulated what we did in HIV. You know, she mentioned John Jacobo. She mentioned Hillary Ronan. These are people in the community. It's a political leader. It is a community leader. It is. Uh, a premier academic research center and, you know, a phenomenal public hospital that all came together to do this intervention in the mission. So I think that that's happening all over the country, but we got distracted by someone with a tuft of orange hair. And uh, we, we think that that reality is, is the reality. And I think that that's a distortion, frankly. I think that there has been incredible activism in this country to respond to COVID. Unfortunately, it's been drowned out by propaganda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Robin tweets, the initial cohort of HIV AIDS researchers was heavily drawn from the cancer virus research sponsored by the war on cancer, which in turn had drawn from the polio vaccination effort. Dr. Havler, how do you think you mentioned that you think researchers of this generation will be shaped by this pandemic? What, what do you think will happen? How will this change their careers and research focus? I think we know that many people are going to be motivated to go into health even before we talk about the current researchers. But one thing I think definitely is happening with the current researchers is people are recognizing the importance of 
addressing disparities, not after the fact. And in some respects, in terms of communities of color, we did do that in HIV. But at the same time, um, in the trenches, in the policy, in the research that we're doing at the very beginning of a pandemic. Um, Jeff, returning to sort of the political questions, I mean, one of the worst things about the way I think a lot of the right-wing approach to the pandemic politically was trying to stir up, um, in particular, anti-Chinese sentiment, um, which appears to have incited a, a rise in attacks in many different Asian communities, including um, the one last night. Um, there are obviously very different situations, but do any of the learnings about the sort of anti-stigma work around AIDS apply in this new context? Absolutely. Um, it's, I really felt, feel an incredible sense of deja vu. Uh, with the scapegoating of the Asian community, uh, with the end, um, I, I just mentioned our friend with orange hair. I guess I wouldn't call him our friend, but our, the gentleman with orange hair. Um, it's not that different from Reagan. There's a certain zeitgeist that came in with each individual. And, you, you know, I, I just felt like uh, our orange hair individual and Reagan were the same person. It's just the mask had been ripped off. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of outbert and overt homophobia that was associated with Reagan. There has obviously been an incredible amount of racism against a, a broad range of communities in our country, including the Asian community and specifically around COVID with the Asian community from the leadership in Washington. You know, kind of getting back to your point about activism, when HIV activism and that movement took off, that was from the ground up. Our orange-haired for, uh, person actually drove activism from the top down. It was it was leadership that was to distort, to lie, to pit communities against each other, all for political advantage, as opposed to a community that was literally dying and fighting for its life. That had that went to friends and neighbors and family and said, "Look at me, you know, I you can't just let me die in silence," and and I think that 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 what we're seeing with the Asian community is the natural consequence of the hate that's been generated over the last four years. We're talking about how the global AIDS epidemic laid the intellectual and scientific foundations for the fight against COVID. And we want to hear from you. Did you live through HIV AIDS and did that prepare you for COVID in some way? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk a little bit about um, vaccinations. Um, A listener asks, why were people who are HIV positive only recently eligible for the COVID vaccine? It feels that this is a group that should have had access at the outset. Dr. Havler? It's, first of all, I think vaccines, I just want to say, are one of the most incredible scientific triumphs we have seen in the last century. I think it's extremely difficult when one has to ration a medical intervention. Nobody wants to ration a medical intervention. We want everyone to get access to these vaccines. And leadership needs to make decisions about the order that people are gonna get vaccinated in when one is in that situation. In our city, you know, now as of uh, uh, Monday, people living with HIV are eligible to get access to the vaccination. 
Thank you to the leadership of our health department director, Grant Colfax, for making that decision. So I, I, I think that um, so many people um, want to get this vaccine. We want them to get the vaccine. And people living with HIV are one of those groups. Jesus, I know that recently um, you were able to get vaccinated. Can you tell us how it how it went for you? No, the opposite. I don't have the vaccine yet. Oh no! Uh, and that is one of the problems. And I'm gonna uh, before really saying again how we have wonderful activists and advocates and groups doing things. The reality is that we shouldn't even just say, okay, HIV should be vaccinated, but at least we should for a long time. And we don't know what happened in the Bay Area that HIV with underlying conditions that put us at high risk were not approved until March 15. Uh, March 15, the same day, I still was calling every possible website app, et cetera. And all of these places told me I still, I didn't qualify. Uh, at this point, what happened is after you're approved and we're approved, now the challenge is to try to find that vaccine. Somebody call it the hunter games of a vaccine. Uh, I would love to really say everything is going great, but not really. Mm. Um, everything is still very chaotic. And I still without the vaccination. And finally, yesterday, I was somebody was reaching out to me. Uh, and I had asthma, had pneumonia, had uh, 10 years cancer survivor, high blood pressure, etc. And what has happened also in the community is that many people are doing it illegally or cutting in front of the line. Uh, it has been asked on the news, please, people, don't do this. There's many people that need it before you. Dr. Havler, if you were in charge of lowering the, the barriers to access to the vaccine for, for people who really need it the most, like Jesus, like, what, what would you do? I think one thing we need to do, which is what we're doing in the mission, what we call low barrier, is that we have a place that people can walk up, talk to a person, not just on a computer, sit down, go over, does at this moment in time, do you qualify for the vaccine? And if you do, get an appointment on the spot either for that day or what we are doing is we are offering transportation from the, the center of the mission to Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital for slots that are available. This is all done with people who are bilingual and multiple other languages. Um, I think that's what low barrier vaccine offerings uh, are. Um, I do think that um, we do... Most of the people, these large sites, are what is going to be the way people get access, and they're able to go on the computer and make an appointment. But it breaks my heart to hear Jesus's story um, about um, the frustration that people have to get vaccinated. And we just need to make sure this multi-pronged approach that our mayor has put forth, which is the large sites, these community sites like we're doing in the mission, at the pharmacies and at health centers, it's going to be chaotic, unfortunately, but I know that we can do better than when we're doing. And I do think people are trying to do that right now as we speak. Yeah. You know, we've uh, focused on the situation here in San Francisco, but obviously there um, are similar, uh, actually worse problems uh, around the world. Farzam tweets, the AIDS pandemic internationally impacted low-income countries much worse due to lack of access to vaccines and treatments. Can we expect the same thing with COVID? And if so, why? 
no one is safe if everyone is not safe. Dr. Havler, do you want to speak to that? I know you have a lot of international experience. Yes, uh, thank you for raising that point. And just recently at our AIDS uh, meeting, we um, started out the meeting uh, with a speaker who addressed this issue of how can the AIDS community help enable access globally to the COVID vaccines. So I think what I can say to that, we are in full agreement. The world is not safe until all people have been vaccinated. And I think health leaders, the AIDS community are all really working towards doing whatever we can using systems we have that are already set up, leverage those to get the most rapid access possible. Yeah. You know, Jeff, um, it's it's incredible that we've been able to develop these uh, vaccines. Uh, you know, early in the hour, we were talking with Contagion uh, screenwriter. And you know, one of the things that movie was hit for was the idea that we'd actually have a vaccine, you know, developed with uh, within months. And that's exactly what actually happened in real life with COVID. And yet, with HIV AIDS, we haven't seen that kind of success. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I think AIDS is just such a, HIV is such a challenge in terms of vaccine. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it mutates in ways that is so different from the way that uh, COVID does that it makes it a, a super hard thing to do. Plus, it integrates into the DNA of the, the cells. It attacks the very immune cells that you need to stimulate in order to create a vaccine. So I, um, I think that that is uh, a just, I, 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 I happen to agree with a lot of folks that it would be very unusual to see uh, an HIV vaccine uh, come out. Um, unfortunately, I, I think in our lifetime, um, it would be an amazing advance, but I'm not overly optimistic. You know, uh, Dr. Havler, while we have not seen um, a, a vaccine for HIV, there have been pretty incredible therapeutics and, and medications that have become uh, available. And in the COVID case, it actually seems like uh, somewhat the reverse. We have some you know, mildly effective drugs and things that people have been able to use in greater understanding of the disease to lower mortality rates. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the, the sort of why that might be? Um, I, I think just to say that one thing is that it's not for the lack of trying. And I think that this is how the really the COVID treatment evaluations in many respects built on the infrastructure we had to test new HIV agents. I mean, honestly, this virus has not been out for this long of a time. We've had hundreds of trials. They have informed us. We figured out many things that do not work. And sometimes that's as, as important as figuring out things that work. So I think right now, the, um, you know, fortunately, the proportion of people that in this very fast-moving uh, uh, illness that get critically ill and die is a tiny amount of all the people that get infected. We do have some excellent therapies that do reduce mortality. And I am very optimistic in the coming months to year that we will get some more easily um, taken medications, such as oral medications, for persons um, early in the disease, for prevention after um, uh, exposures. But probably if we had a pick in terms of having a vaccine in this short of a time or having a, a pill for people who have mildly symptomatic disease, there's no doubt that the vaccine is the breakthrough we needed um, in order to contain this pandemic. 
Jesus, um, do you have just we have thirty seconds? Do you have uh, anything to say for people who are dealing with long COVID, um, really struggling um, with their health? Uh, yeah, um, the, the first thing that we have to be concerned about is the stigma and discrimination with HIV after 40 years. Uh, there's still websites that say, will you date an HIV positive person? We are very concerned about the attack against many communities, but also about the lack of many efforts still. There's no tracking for our LGBTQ elders doing the vaccinations yet. Uh, our HIV London survivors don't feel acknowledged. Mm -hmm. They feel abandoned even now for vaccination. Uh, and that there's still a lot of work to do. I applaud all the wonderful things, but we also need a lot of things to Thank, do. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks to all of our guests. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's another hour forum next with Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.